Welcome to this week's episode of Political Bark. In this episode, we're going to discuss how we can successfully tackle change. In the coming 30 years, we expect significant change in almost all aspects that govern our lives, both nationally and globally. The climate might peak above three degrees, the world economy might never be the same after the corona crisis, a climate migration crisis may, may be underway, and the nation state seems to be making a resurgence in Europe, not to mention but a few major structural changes. Where this will lead us, we can't say and we don't know, but what we can imagine is that, and what we can imagine and know is that change is happening whether we like it or not. Psychologically speaking, humans are typically resistant to change. From a neurological perspective, we are wired to build habits to create familiar routines, as this is more efficient and energy-conserving for the brain. Change introduces something new and uncertain and requires more of us, more of our brains, which causes stress and discomfort. And as a natural reaction, we then typically avoid this experience strain that comes with it. Dr. Heidi Grant Halverson explains that it's not just that people are fear change, though they undoubtedly do, it's also that they genuinely believe, often on an unconscious level, that when we're, we've been doing something in a particular way for some time, it must be a good way of doing things. And the longer we've been doing it that way, the better it is. So change isn't, isn't simply about embracing something unknown, it's about giving up something old and therefore good for something new and therefore not good. So we have both a loss aversion of the old and an aversion to experience the stress of the new. All in all, we have an inbuilt resistance to change. Change is, however, a constant in our lives, both at work and societies. The next 30 years certainly appear to tight packet with significant structural change. So how can we best prepare and meet change? How can we have a positive process when it comes to change and are there differences in how women and men tackle change? Are there culture differences when it comes to change? To help us answer these questions, we're going to speak with one of Norway's most pr prominent business leader, innovation advocates and role models to many, Anita Krontroset. so much for being with us here today to talk about the ability to change and the topic of change. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, we are so thrilled to have you given your background not only as a former CEO of Innovation Norway, former managing director of Hewitt Packet, and as an author to mention some of your background, we think you are uniquely positioned to be able to reflect on sectors that have gone significant change both from a human perspective and a tech perspective. And we see that in the upcoming 20 years, we expect huge change. And it can almost maybe feel a bit doomsday-like, given the predictions that are in the agenda. So by jumping straight into it, the first question we have is how much you think things are going to change in the next 20 years? It's a very big question for you. <laughs> If we take Norway as an example. Um, what are the biggest changes that will occur? What positive consequences will come with these changes? And perhaps what negative ones also? Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, indeed, it's a, it's, it's a big question, but I think it's extremely important because um, probably things will change even more than we can imagine. And if we just take a look at what has happened the past 20 years, um, I think there's very few of us that could predict uh, Brexit, that could predict the rise of the internet, 
the price of, of, of Trump, um, Tesla, uh, black swans like uh, 9-11. I mean, I, I think, uh, I don't think anyone has a really good answer on what's going to happen. But I think at least what we're seeing um, is at least a stronger EU. So I observe, luckily, as a consequence, a positive consequence of the negative Brexit <laughs> is a stronger EU having focused, for example, on Green Deal and also on innovation. And I think, uh, I think that's important for Norway because Norway is such a small economy. And, and we really woke up in 2014 when uh, the prices of our oil really were heavily reduced. Mm -hmm. So right. I think if you look at Norway as an example, the biggest change that will occur for us is how are we going to transform our national economy from an oil-dependent economy to a much more diverse economy. So Norway has had the past 45 years a pole position as one of the world's top 10 uh, oil co uh, countries. And we've become extremely wealthy based on that. But now we have other kind of knowledge saying that this is not sustainable. And we're going to have to change and lead our country into a more diversified economy. It's going to be much more green and sustainable. We're going to have to need to build new industries because oil and gas is approximately 50 to 60% of our export economy. Mm. So there's going to be massive changes and I think both Europe and Norway, we are quite well positioned when it comes to understanding that we are in the six waves of innovation right now. So there are six waves and the wave we are in now is all about sustainability. It's all about how do we uh, react to radical resource productivity? How do we uh, create more renewable energy? Um, and the fifth wave, for example, that was not a wave where either Europe nor Norway was, was number one because that was all about software information technology, digital networks. Yeah. You saw the big American companies. Um, I mean, if you look at the top big country, uh, companies in the world, these are the typical fifth wave uh, uh, companies. But that is going to change in the sixth wave. And who's on the top list of the biggest companies in the world in 20 years? I think that's a very interesting exercise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I don't know, but I think for those who are really curious now and actually uh, invest time and, uh, and, and put together um, competencies and, and people from different uh, parts of the world with different kind of knowledge trying to look into the change and trying to predict it, I think we need to do that even more now because uh, the insecurity is huge. And what I'm hearing you saying is that we're looking at, at least from a Norwegian perspective, profound changes to our economy, to what yeah. businesses we're going to participate in. And so it's it, we're looking at changes that, that are going to seep through all layers of society. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, um, we've had a pole position for so many years. And when this is a transformation, it will take time before we really understand um, how, how big this uh, change is. Because, I mean, if I look at myself, I'm born in the beginning of the 1970s. I'm born into growth and wealth in Norway. Mm. 
I right. don't really have a background of understanding what difficult times is. Right. Um, because, uh, yes, of course, we had the dot-com, the dot-bankruptcy in the beginning of 2000. I mean, when the financial crisis hit um, the world of Europe in 2009, Norway was almost not affected, yeah. right? Agreed. So our wake-up call came so much later in 2014. But luckily, we're in a change with a big bank account. Yes. You know? <laughs> so I, I'd, I'd say that... Um, I, I think that the choices that the generation before us took when it comes to understanding how to save the money for future generations, that was a really wise one. Yeah. I think, um, but now I'm, I'm worried, you know. I, I, I want us to use that money for the future, uh, not for um, putting money into industries that's not going to survive anyway, you know. We need to put money in how do we transform these industries and how do we build up new ones. Yeah. I, I need that balance. I, I'm worried about the balance. In uh, As you're mentioning now and uh, as we've seen in, in some newspaper articles that you've written over the years, you've discussed this need for Norway to innovate, to uh, shift focus and take a more leading role. And for example, uh, sustainable business development how would you describe Norway's culture around change and its ability to change? Are we this adaptable people are going to be able to take our bank account into new <laughs> sectors? Or are we going to be stubborn peasants like the Dane tried to rule? Well, I, I, I think understanding the Norwegian culture is important because um, we have a very high self-esteem. <laughs> uh, that we can change. We've right. always changed. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, Anita, is it is it self esteem or is it sometimes if you're very scared you will front as if you have self esteem? Is yeah, it both or is it is it real self esteem? Okay. Because I mean, correctly, I mean, if we look at the future, we do have the evidence to say that we will change when we have to, right? Because mm, yeah. that's the beauty of being only five point two million people. I mean, look at yeah. how we have mobilized and how we take directions when we have to. My point is that I don't think we feel that we have to right now. We are still in this, I don't know what to call it, a buzzing mode. Yeah, right. Like when the alarm clock rings. We, we oh, we're snoozing, we're snoozing it. Yeah, we're snoozing it. Okay. <laughs> we are in a snoozing mode. And we're just pushing the button just to wait just a little bit more. But is just that, a little bit longer. Is that, is that smart? Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm always thinking. I'm always thinking. Okay, uh, action, and we have to think about this now, and it has to happen today. And this is this yeah. is you know. And then I'm like, hello, what, what's happening? Can everybody wake up and and start? Thinking? You know, it's 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 fascinating to see. But then if it actually works okay by snoozing and then reacting, then yeah. Well, I mean, but the other element I feel like um you're you're both getting to is that. I'm, I'm also concerned about whether or not we are gritty as a culture. Are we? It's been a really long time since Norway as a nation was poor, since we had significant challenges in our economy. Like you were mentioning that the, two, the financial crisis really didn't hit the Norwegian economy to a large extent in 2007, more so in 2014. And I'm wondering how my generation who's never known anything else, the glossure generation, so the creme de la creme generation, as we call it in English, 
how we're going to face uncertainty and change, our ability to change. But, but my hope is with your generation and the generation that's uh, coming after you. Because okay. I, I see a big difference, at least uh, from the entrepreneurial side. So I work with entrepreneurs for many, many years. And the entrepreneurs that we are meeting now, I, I, I'd say the, uh, the average Norwegian entrepreneur is really concerned about sustainability. Um, you don't have to explain for a young person uh, the need uh, to have a circular economy or, or why we have to move um, from uh, a black to a green economy. Mm. The ideas they have are so, um, I'd, I'd say that they're much more um, oriented through creating a future that belongs to more than myself, my family, my house, my own bank account. Hmm. So I, I, I see, I don't have any research that can, can say that this is right, but at least it's, it's an observation I have. The mentality. That, yeah, that the mentality of, of being global citizens, understanding right. that you're part of something bigger without being um, pathetic, you know, because you grew up in a digital world. You have connections and communications with people cross borders. You are much more borderless yeah. than generations before you, like the silent generation, the baby boomers, or, or, or Generation X. You're much more oriented through um, through global outlook, I would say. So even though you don't, uh, Norwegian young people haven't experienced being poor, I think the empathy, the interest, the knowledge, the understanding is bigger in your generation than it was in other generations. At least it's my hope. Don't take it away from me. Okay? <laughs> no, I, I think it. I think it sounds very, very true. Uh, my uh, concern, actually, just to be negative here, is, <laughs> is what about um, risk? What about security issues? Do young people think about the um, the cost and the risks that can occur? Because we are not the war wartime generation, so we are not used to having uh, continuous uh, risk lurking as much as you know previous generations so we have this yeah. this sort of empathetic look to our to our neighboring countries and to the world and to fellow citizens and to the you know eco but you know war and and the security that's a huge huge part yeah. of our daily lives also yeah. in my opinion but i think that's that's yeah. the next step up again in terms of i mean there's change and there's change uh, and uh, there's the economic concern about what's the Norwegian economy going to look like in 20 years but whether or not we're being war with Sweden I, I think that that's expecting even more of, of a population but yeah. As, yeah. as like wording and security for me it's like security first and then we are yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. we do everything else yeah. but anyways um, absolutely yeah on on a more individual level people uh, don't always like to change and like change we're sometimes afraid of change do you have any thoughts on how we can better embrace change? What is holding us back and how can we be more motivated? I, I think it's very human not to like change. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think most of us, I mean, we, we score differently when it comes to adaptability of change. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of 
excellent research on the change object. Uh, and I think we have to start to accept with uh, accepting the fact that we are different. Yeah. But when times are in change, uh, you need more. Um, you need more people who understand how to drive and mobilize change than others. And in Norway, we don't really have a distinction between leadership and management. Right. Uh, they do have that in the U.S. And I think one of the most at least influential uh, professors and writers that I've clinched to for so many years is, is Professor uh, Cotter at Harvard. And he has written a lot about change, both from an individual uh, point of view, mm -hmm. but also from an organization and also from a nation uh, perspective. And he really explains the difference between what leaders do in change and what administrators do. So uh, I think reading up, actually, on what change is, very few of us does that, uh, do that. We don't do that. We just, you know, uh, we, we go on with our lives and, and, and we change if we have to. And nowadays, um, every leader has to deliver change. 15 years ago, when I started with it, it was called change leadership. Right. You know, it was, it, it was um, something you were trained to do because most leaders didn't do changes. It was more about doing the same as the last year and hopefully some more growth. But they didn't do the big transformations that we are in midst doing now. <laughs> I think the average leader are becoming much more a change leader. <laughs> uh, and that is demanding much more um, uh, a different focus. So while an administrator is really good at control, is really good at adding up the Excel sheets, is really good at, 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 at KPIs reporting, not asking too many questions, the leader will have to turn the stones, asking questions that will jeopardize how we perceive the world or the company as it's been so far. Why are we doing this? Does it make sense? Is it relevant for the future? How can we mobilize uh, the workforce and the culture to be part of, of changing the way they're working? For example, I'm using digital equipment. For example, not serving customers the same way that they've always done because your generation, you want to do most of it yourself 24-7 on the internet. <laughs> you want to have access, right? Yeah. As long as it makes sense, you want to have access. And when it doesn't make sense to do it on the internet, you want to talk to people. Mm. You want to be connected. Mm. You want to have service. <laughs> and how do we... How do we uh, plan our services and products to meet um, that demand? So I, I think change is always going to be difficult. But so, so I'm I'm the part where, um, of the people who, who loves change, you know? Right. <laughs> and I have to understand that that's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, so I've worked very much with implementing the models of Professor Cutter on how to um, implement change in organizations. I mean, and he has an eight-step model, which is really, really good. And I, I, I recommend you to... to uh, maybe cool. you can put on an article from Carter on, on leading change. Absolutely. It's really good, yeah. Um, he also has written, he's also written a fable for those who don't, who don't really like strategy and business. 
What do they do? What do they do? They they um you know, they fly. No. <laughs> yeah, but that's the point because there's a descriptions of different reactions. Right. So how you can understand how people in organizations are reacting when you know um, when the revenue everything is is going away? How, how do they change? I mean, some some of the change we're talking about here is you know voluntary change. It's uh, you, you want to digitize because it'll make your business uh, more efficient. And then some change is very much involuntary in the case of downsizing your firm. And uh, from your time in Innovation Norway, my impression is that you've had experience with both sides of positive and voluntary and more demanding um, and more involuntary change. Given your extensive background here in leadership and some of the models you're picking up in terms of change, we wanted to ask you, how can a leader best participate and steer both positive and negative change here? Oh, also a big question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's probably many great solutions on how a leader can implement that because it's so um, it's so connected uh, to the context, you know, to, to, to the company you're leading, the people you are leading, the situation that the company is, is at. But in generally... I would say that one of the most important jobs for a leader in the beginning is explaining the situation, the perspective on why do we need to change. Don't take that for granted. Don't don't believe that if you have an organization with 500 people that they're all concerned about what top management do or strategy. They are most concerned about their jobs and, and how they do their jobs. Yeah. So actually... Trying uh, to create um, and explain a narrative that's that's true, uh, that's realistic, that's open, and, and be honest. You know, uh, say that it's going to be difficult. Um, say that uh, yes, we're going to lose some of our colleagues. Yeah, yeah, that's important. Say it. You know, mm. <laughs> I think uh, being honest. And, and trying to steer the uh, expectations. If, if leaders go silent or they only communicate after they have a leadership meeting, I don't think that's good. Try to be open also when it comes to availability on the digital platforms. When people are asking questions, they are worried. Try to answer them. And I think also a second thing that has been important for me is understanding that you, you cannot mobilize everyone to be part of the change. You cannot accept, um, uh, you cannot not accept that there will be a huge part of the organization that doesn't want to take part of it in the beginning. And that mm-hmm. is okay. As long as you have a critical mass of, of change agents within your organization on different levels, that's the, the force and the power you, you need in the beginning because people will need they will need time to to have a look at it to analyze it to make up their mind if they want to be part of it or not Hmm. and also the business has to go on you know i've never seen a company who said okay we're going to shut down for a couple of years now because we're going to change (laughs) (laughs) you're going to have to change while you are delivering uh, what you do so it's it's a good thing everyone doesn't want to take part of it don't be don't be sad or 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 depressed as a leader thinking well i don't have everybody with me how can i make this happen Mm. well it's exactly right 
critical mass, you can go. It yeah. still sounds challenging, though, to be the, the, the driving force behind processes of change. Even if it's, uh, let's call it a, a voluntary change, you want everyone to now start using Teams instead of Skype, or it could be big or small, but having that... You have the critical math with you, but it's also, I imagine it must also be demanding to, you're saying you should be accepting, but it sounds like there's going to be a certain amount of friction in any processes of change. Absolutely. And I think friction, um, you can divide that into two areas. You have healthy, constructive friction because, I mean, if you don't have friction, there's an issue. Because friction is about, is the change you're doing big enough? <laughs> yeah. If it's not, it doesn't create friction. Or also friction interesting. Stems, yeah, it, it also stems back to the loyalty and love that your employees have for the company. You know, it, it, it's their, um, what, I mean, they, they look at their job and their company, specifically if they work in the public sector, is very, is a large part of their identity. Right. Mm. So, so. The resistance to change is not always because they don't want to do it. It's because they're worried that you as a leader are making stupid mistakes now. Yeah. You know? You're changing the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I then, of course, it's the third thing. It's the people who doesn't want to be part of it, and they actively destroy it. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. That's not healthy. Yeah. They, and, and they exist. <laughs> yeah, they, they actively go against the change and, and create sort of a bad uh, bad environment. Yeah, 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 and there are several reasons for that. But I've read some research, uh, actually, from a Norwegian professor. He describes this extremely well. He says that a lot of leaders are quite naive. They think that um, uh, the resistance for change are based in that people are worried. And, and he says, yes, that's right to a point. But there's also very planned negative destruction trying to, to move away the change and the change is always or very often represented by the CEO right so it will be personal right you know? they will put their targets on you you mm. represent the change you are the negativity and if they can, can stop your projects or even get you removed they will try to do that but this sounds like politics Yeah, it is political. <laughs> very normal. Yeah. Does he explain um, why these, uh, I don't know what I should call them. I'm, I'm trying to um, pick a noun that's not maybe not neutral, but that's going to fit. Someone who, well, people who don't actively don't want these change and who are being counterproductive. Uh, does he explain why they're, they end up taking that position? It's because probably it's um, the change is representing a uh, uh, shift in power. Okay. So this, for example, if it's an old uh, company, uh, it hasn't been changed for many years. I mean, the informal chart of power is extremely effective or active, I would say, yeah. in times of change. Because uh, they've been used to making decisions and in this and this way, they've used to have their uh, domain, uh, domain yeah. of, of, of area where you know where they decide. And if you take, if you change the organization, you, you change the positions, you you, you change um, the platform of 
of how they have been operating in the past, what, 20 years. Um, not everyone is pleased with that. Uh, I, I would say the majority uh, is pleased with it and wants the change. Yeah. But some will, it will represent a, a personal threat to their, um, to their position in the company. That sounds sounds very uh, <clears throat> very normal actually. That that there's a sort of negative disruptive. Uh, uh, yeah, I find this very interesting, and I think most of us we are not prepared for these kind of situations. We don't understand them. I think many of us we um, we analyze the situation wrong, and I think that's why I'm also such a big fan of, of research because. I mean, there's, there's been so many change processes in so many different companies that we can learn from, that you can prepare for. And if you prepare for it and you talk about it, it's so much easier uh, to fix it. But I think you have to understand that the change is challenging. Change from a, a psychological standpoint can be dangerous for a leader, you know? Uh, not only for legally, but specifically, I would say, for the mid-managers, because they are the ones who need to implement the change. It's mm -hmm. very seldom the top leaders. It's the mid-managers who have all the personal responsibility and the budget and will have to do the changes. Uh, and I think understanding that uh, all the obstacles uh, and all the, the, the biases that needs us that we don't talk about, uh, they are there in the society and, and very much so in other countries. Right, it's, it's really how people are, it's the reality. What do people choose? What do they feel yeah. at home in their living room? This is how they yeah. feel. And we have to yeah. take um, take into account that that's people's reality. We can say that we feel equal, that we are equal, but do we act accordingly? Yes, absolutely. We, uh, we have um, one last question for you. and. Mm -hmm. You've, you're a renowned leader and a business badass, in our opinion, but you've also, you're an author, you've just started a podcast, um, and it feel, we wanted to ask, how can we help those among, do you have any advice for those among us who want to make change happen? You've made a lot of change happen in both in the business world and in your professional life. Do you have any advice? How do we make change happen? How do we embrace change? Oh, um, there's many ways of participating in, in in different changing process. You can do it by being an entrepreneur, you can do it by being a politician, uh, by being uh, a corporate worker, an entrepreneur doing changes in big organizations. You can do it by being an activist, you can do it by uh, having a hobby. But I think the most important thing is to actually... Uh, be that change yourself. I mean, that sounds like a stupid quote, <laughs> uh, but, but for me it's not because um, I wanted to uh, create, uh, be part of creating a bigger balance between female and male leadership uh, in, uh, as CEOs in the Norwegian business life. Well, I cannot have speeches of how important that is, I have to take on that role myself. Mm. So I've, I've, I've done the work going from being a trainee, working for 25 years, becoming the top CEO. So I think by walking the walk, right. know, walk or walking the talk, that's yeah. not the 
No, 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 no. Talking, talking the talk, walking the walk. No, no, it's yeah. when you were right. Yeah. 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 But it's by actually doing it, yeah. experiencing it, not only read about it or have reflections about it, but take on the different roles. That's the way you can be uh, maybe uh, someone that other people can talk to, or you can share experiences. And maybe then you can motivate one or two or three or four uh, to, to release uh, their potential and, and, and to contribute to that uh, massive uh, change that we need in, in distributing power. Mm. Right. What about quotating? Uh, uh, po- do you mean positive discrimination? Something? Yeah. For uh, like putting into quotas of women? Yeah. What do you think about that, Anita? So... I think I've had a uh, growing pace. Uh, I've had a, I've, I've been maturing on this topic because I was quite young when the law came in Norway on quotation for uh, board members on companies on the stock exchange. I was at that point quite skeptical okay. as quotation as a tool. Okay. Because I thought at that time I thought. I think probably it was also a little bit personal. I was like fighting a struggle to trying to show people that I'm more than good enough and, and don't give me opportunities because I'm a woman. You know, I, mm. I, I can show you, I can compete on all the right levels. And also, I believe in quotation in politics, but in business life, I was more is that the right level to start having women into the boards? Don't we have to start with growing leadership potentials in the organizations right. so that they can actually um, uh, grow and become CEOs and become owners, become investors? Uh, so I was a little bit unsure if quotation was the right tool. And I would say that it was the right tool, but it did not solve everything. Actually, if you look at the results now, the quotation law in Norway are the same results in the board as other countries who was doing the laissez-faire. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I, the quotation is a, is a really important signal saying that we're going to have to change this, people. This you matters. Know, you know, this matters. It's a big change because that will give... Um, CEOs and, and, and companies uh, a kind of a kick to act differently because how do you produce candidates to be uh, on boards? I mean, you, you have to produce them in the companies, you know? Yeah. That's where you produce CEOs. You mm. don't produce them in the boardroom. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important that in the boardroom there should not only be uh, women with a high expertise on a subject. Mm. You know, what we need in the boards are people who have massive experience of reading, you know, who understands how it is being a CEO, understands how it is transforming a company, understands how it is to have multinational companies, employees around the world. Um, That's the kind of, how do you do this knowledge? That's really valuable in a board. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So in some ways we can think of uh, change, at least in Norway, we, we, we can see incremental change, slow, slow change. It's slow. 
for example, compared to, let's say, the change that is occurring in the U.S. right now uh, with the Black Lives Matter, it's it's it was it was a, a stagnating. I think the whole the discrimination and racism uh, topic was stagnating, but now it hit. You know, it hit such a it hit, it's such a nerve, such a nerve that it, it's a boiling point. Yeah, it's that it that it that it really you know caught the masses. So that's another type of change we can think of that might lead to something faster. Uh, but currently, in Norway, we still see the incremental change, especially also when it comes to women taking up more space. I don't think uh, there's going to be any big revolution soon on, <laughs> on the women's part, but I think uh, uh, all women should do their, their, their little task in uh, creating some small revolutions at home and, and, and outside. Yes, start with ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that because becoming a CEO or, or at least uh, choosing a path of leadership, it's a very personal decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if we also, at least for, for, for those of us who've gone that path, I think we have a responsibility to share with you how that path, path has been. Because th- this is a whole different game. I mean, men has been in this game for hundreds, thousands of years leading. Women has not at the same level. And right. it is a skill that needs to be taught and you know it's a lot of i mean men learn a lot about this in in military there's not that many women who have military experience you know understanding power games organization hierarchies Mm. uh, political games you know it's a skill Mm, (laughs) And, and you can't really i mean you can study it but you have to experience it so at least for for um uh, for other women who have gone before us, uh, I've really appreciated when they have shared their uh, experiences, uh, when they also dare to talk about the things that are difficult. Um, also, I, I wrote an article in, in December uh, 2019 in um, the national newspaper of Norway, Aftenposten, giving five advice, advices to young women uh, who wants to reach the top level. And it created a massive hysteria. Really? Uh, because, yeah, because there was this psychology who said that, you know, I was not taking care of my children. Oh, yeah. Yes. It's not possible to become the CEO uh, in an office and then be the CEO at home. And my point was, you have to lean out of, of that expectations of who you need to be as a woman also at home mm, right you know you, you are a human being mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Men, men are as as as, as, uh, as comfortable uh, what do you say capable capable uh, are as capable of taking care of these children than you are you know if you actually let them do it yeah yeah definitely <laughs> If you let go of that control gene of knowing how to dress your children, knowing how to prepare the food, what kind of flowers you want, I mean... Me, growing up, uh, my mom, she put uh, salami and um, jam, strawberry jam, and she smacked the sandwich together. And, and she was, because she was she was working full time and my dad also. So it was like, I got yeah. to school and I was like, how am I going to eat this? <laughs> I, I think, probably, are you good at cooking? Honestly, the last years, yes. <laughs> I, 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 I think this is a 
great consequence of being children of business or, 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 or uh, full-time working parents because I'm really not good at cooking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But my two eldest daughters are. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. And Amazing. I did not teach them this, you know? Yeah. Uh, this is uh, this is an... Uh, it's YouTube. It's probably the same. Yeah, it's YouTube. We have to thank YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> no, but my mom also. Hi, mom, if you're listening. You are also not a good cook. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I... the dry lasagna. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, when would we expect from any CEO male that they need to also be the CEO at home? When did we ever put that responsibility on their shoulders? And why should we put that responsibility on female shoulders? I don't get it. Mm -hmm. And why do we ask a CEO about his personal life and about how he's steering things at home and back to what you were saying earlier about how female leaders to a greater extent we focus on the packaging yeah maybe at least more so than for male leaders i i I would be i i would have been pretty um taken aback if we'd asked the ceo of equinor who who puts the who makes pizza at home yes absolutely yeah that would be an awesome question yeah and i think since women are being so focused on their uh, packaging, yeah. um, you know, um, there, 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 there comes so much criticism if that packaging doesn't fit the expectations. Right. Yeah. And as I saw not many months ago, there was an interview with, I think, the new um, defense, top defense uh, guy in Norway. And at the front page of this national newspaper, he was kind of um, um, presented as the real, real leader, you know? He has seen his children too little. Oh, yeah. His job goes, uh, is priority number one. He has two marriages behind him. Yeah. That's who I am. Because he proud of it. He took one for the team. He sacrificed the family family for the job. Can you imagine a woman saying that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, then she's ice queen. She would have been burnt at the stake, the media stake. But it's also it's like asking uh, it's like asking uh, <clears throat> a CEO about his work life balance. How was your yeah. work life balance? <laughs> Did you? What, do you mean? what is that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, thank you yeah. so so much, Anita, for sharing your thoughts about these topics that are both I think interesting to the nation as a whole, but particularly to me and Sophie, as hopefully coming female leaders in our respective fields and yeah. we want to thank you for uh, both sharing a personal level and from your leadership background thank you so much and remember we need you so please go all the way and when you want to feel that you want to quit just keep continuing all right you're just starting all okay right? okay go for the whole uh go for the positions and, and make that change it's the only way you can do it thank you so great much great advice yeah. thank you
Thank you guys for listening to this week's episode of Political Work. We hope you enjoyed the valuable advice and perspectives from Anita as much as we did. We certainly will take a lot of it with us further in our careers and our lives. Next week's episode is with the Egyptian ambassador to Norway, Mr. Ahmed Ramadan. He will talk about the Egyptian-Chinese relationships, uh, China and the Middle East, and a bit about other national issues and topics in Egypt. So tune in.